Salt Company, what is up? My name is Joe Nealis, and I am the Salt Director now. Got some pretty small shoes to fill. Can I get an amen? Um, no, but seriously, we're going to super miss Daniel. He'll pop in here every once in a while. He'll be preaching. So he's not gone yet. Yeah, boo, boo. Uh, but he's incredible. Um, I could go off on that, but very thankful for him and his influence. Let's talk about life with God. That's our series that we're going through to, uh, this summer. We're going to be going through the book of Psalms. And tonight we're going to be going to Psalm 51. Now, you guys don't have to open there yet. Everyone's like, open up now, huh? I want to start with a story. So uh, when I was in high school, I worked at a summer camp. Any summer camp people here? Oh, baby. Very nice. So I had the best job in the world, worked in the kitchen. Yeah. So I had a chance to clean tables, clean the bathroom, serve food, do dishes. Super great. But I did that when I was in high school, and there was, so every Tuesday, we would do, like, pasta night. And on this particular night, we did Alfredo, hallelujah. And on this one night, uh, we, the head cook was gone, was out of town. I don't remember what he was gone for. Um, and so his apprentices had to make dinner. They had to make the Alfredo. Now, here's the thing. If you are working in a kitchen uh, at a camp, you don't do this full time, right? Unless you're the head cook, you are probably in high school or maybe you're like a freshman in college and you have no desire to be cooking. You're literally just there because you want to be at camp, okay? So he's delegating this massive responsibility to cook for like 800 people. Hey, figure out how to make Alfredo. Great, there's got to be a recipe. Nope, can't find it. And so what they end up doing is instead of looking online, they obviously... Try to make it up themselves, which is going to work great. So what ends up happening is they're trying to figure it out. They're like, a little bit of this, oh, you know, mix it, mix it up and everything. And again, this is not like for maybe a family of 10. This is literally for between 800, 900 campers, okay? So if you are making food for that, like you're, you make a huge mistake, 900 people are going to know, okay? So they make it and... Uh, <laughs> We serve and, you know, everything's going well. And we call for seconds and nobody comes. And we're like, oh, cool. We don't really think anything of it. We're like, all right, sweet. Time for us to eat because we would eat last. So we, like, pile on, like, the food pretty high and everything. And we take a seat. And it wasn't until we all took our first bite that we were like, this tastes like pancake batter. This is horrible. 800 people just tried this? Like, we just ruined their lives. No one's going to come back to camp anymore, right? So we're, like, freaking out. This is kind of related. <laughs> but I remember one of, the, one of the cooks who, like, kind of headed out the whole recipe, which was just horrible. He, like, committed himself to eating the whole, like, his whole plate. And so he did it, and then he just, like, ran to the bathroom. So, woohoo, worked great. <laughs> so, but here's the thing. There was a massive misunderstanding for those people. They had no idea how to make Alfredo because obviously they didn't have any instructions. But there's a massive misunderstanding and a ton of people paid for it. Basically ruined everybody's life, okay? Was horrible, right? Imagine if they would have understood how to make it. Everyone's happy, everyone's got their food, and probably we would have never noticed because it's like, it's just supposed to be good. That's just how food is supposed to be if you work in a kitchen, okay? 
that would have been great, but that's not what happened. Because they misunderstood it, it essentially ruined the lives of everybody who ate it. And misunderstanding something as important as that can be devastating, okay? The leader ended up getting in trouble because he's like, hey, you, you basically did not equip these people. 800 people just had noodles with pancake batter on it, essentially. It's disgusting. And so that principle is true, right? If misunderstanding something as important or that is really important can be obviously very devastating. And that principle is true as we think about the topic of repentance. When, that, when we use that word and when that word comes to mind, a lot of us have different ideas of what that could possibly mean. For some of us, we think of people with the big sign that says, hey, turn or burn. You're those kind of people, repent or turn, you know, and it's like, oh, that's... Uh, don't, no thank you. Um, and other people, maybe not so much. Maybe you're like, man, this is, that's super life-giving. That's, that's, that's one of the keys to my, to my walking with the Lord. And so the thing is, if all of us have different ideas of what repentance is, and some of us have to be wrong. And if we're wrong, if we misunderstand what repentance is, right, according to the Bible, it can ruin our lives. There are people who leave Christianity because they got repentance wrong. Or the pastor that was preaching taught repentance wrong. People leave for that. They feel this sense of, of maybe doubt or guilt or shame and all these things when they think about repentance. But if we understood repentance the way that the Bible talks about it, we would unlock a deeper connection with God than we had ever imagined. Maybe when I say that, you're like, that's not my experience right now. <clears throat> Maybe it's because your repentance is not according to what the Bible says it is. So flip open your Bibles to Psalm 51 if you haven't already. Because, I'm going to test you, because when we hear God's word, we... <laughs> what? <laughs> when we hear God's word, we... Let's go, baby. Let's go. So Psalm 51 is where we're going to be camping tonight. It's really embarrassing to get caught in the middle of your sin, okay? All of us have had that experience before to some degree when you've been caught in the middle of doing something wrong, and it's massively embarrassing. It's earth-shattering. And this same thing happened to King David when he wrote this psalm. Some of you guys are familiar, but for those of you who aren't, King David, he was the king of Israel at the time. And what happens, this happens, I believe it's in First or 2 Samuel chapter 12. What happens is he sees a woman showering from where he is. And as the king, he says, hey, guards, go get her. I like her. Bring her over to me. He ends up sleeping with her, gets her pregnant to cover it all up because she, she was a married woman. He takes his, he uses his power to send guards to kill this man. So he's doing all these things. He's covering up his sin. And what ends up happening is his friend Nathan comes up to him and says, Dude, David, I know what you did. You can't hide. You can't sweep this under the rug. You got someone pregnant and you killed a person. I, I can't let this slip. Do you see that you are rebelling against God? And at that point in time, David is just hit with this wall of the guilt of his sin. The gravity of his choices finally hits him. 
And what we're about to look at is how he responds. And it's in his response that we see four characteristics of true repentance. And that's what I want to talk about. It's in his response in Psalm 51 that we see four characteristics of true repentance. Look with me at verse 1. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. So after being confronted about his sin, he now feels the incredible weight of his guilt and his shame. And you know where he runs first? You know what immediately comes to mind for David? In the middle of, after one of the biggest mistakes of his entire life, you know what comes to mind for him when he comes into the presence of God? God's anger at him? How unforgivable his sin is? Is that what's coming to mind for him? No. After he sinned, he immediately ran to grace. So point number one is this. True repentance runs to grace. True repentance runs to grace. David, from the get-go, after the guilt and shame that he feels, the horrible things that he's done, immediately dives headfirst into the deep sea of God's love and forgiveness and mercy. Unashamedly, he just jumps into it. After the, one of the biggest mistakes, biggest blunders of his entire life, he dives headfirst into God's grace. It's because he is sure of God's love. Look with me at verse 1 again. It says, according to your faithful love. He, he, he's confident in God's love for him because it says it's faithful. It's never leaving. It's staying there. He's confident of God's compassion because it's abundant. It's not going to run out. So after sinning, he runs to grace. That's what fills his mind. But for most of you in this room, if you were to be honest, you can't resonate with that. When you sin, you find yourself thinking not about God's abundant grace and mercy. You think about things like this. How much God can't love you anymore. How much God hates you. How much God is angry at you. How far away you've strayed. These are the first things that are coming to your mind. And how God must be tired of seeing you fall into the same sin over and over again. Does that sound familiar to you? When you sin, where do you run? You find yourself thinking about how God must not love you as much as he did before you sinned. And instead of running to grace, you run to condemning thoughts. That's where you find yourself running. All you think about is how far from God you are and how we could never forgive you. And in response, you do one of two things. Number one, you reject God and ignore him because you think he hates you. Why would you want to spend time with a God that you think is angry at you all the time? Or number two, you try to gain God's approval by trying to outweigh your bad deeds with your good. So after you sin, you're like, oh man, but if I just read my Bible enough, man, if I go to Connection Group enough, if I go to Salt Company enough, man, if I go to church on Sunday enough, then everything would be okay. I want to 
I want to outweigh the bad with the good. But here's the thing. Neither one of these responses ever helps. One leads to resentment, and the other leads to burnout and frustration. Family, we need to realize the radical message of God's grace the same way that David did. Because for many of us, when we sin, we think that God loves us less and that he kind of hangs our sin in front of us and taunts us with it all the time. Man, there are some sins that he forgives, but there are also some, man, that I just feel like he really holds on to. And man, that's what you think of. But David shows us that that is not God's heart. That is not God's heart. David, after rebelling against God by the decisions he made, doesn't say, be gracious to me, even though I know you're not going to, and I know that you don't like me, and I know that you're just, you know, whatever, you're not going to forgive me. Uh, but maybe in the face of horrible shame and guilt, he doesn't run to condemnation. He runs to grace because he, he clings to the character of God. What kind of love is it? It's faithful. What kind of compassion? Abundant. Do you believe that? After the worst mistake in your life, and for some of you, you're like, man, that was last week. Man, that was today. Or maybe it's something from a year ago that still haunts you. Do you run to grace? Because David confidently recalls God's faithful love and his abundant compassion. Yeah, he's filled with grief. Of course he is. But he is comforted by the mighty unchanging love and compassion of God. All because he believed the radical message of grace that when you ask for forgiveness, God will wipe your slate clean entirely. Christian in the room, do you believe that message? Do you believe that God completely wipes the slate clean every moment of every day if you are a believer in Jesus? What if God didn't keep a record of your wrongs? And what if when you sin, God was more willing to forgive you than you were to ask for forgiveness in the first place? You see, David doesn't think to himself, man, God could never, ever forgive me. I'm too far. I did all these things. God could never forgive me. That's not where his mind is at. No. He knows how the devil works. And we know this well. As soon as you sin, here's what, here's what the devil does. He draws you in, lures you in to make the choice to sin. Man, this looks so good. It's so enticing. Do this thing. But what does he do as soon as you do it? Accuse, 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 accuse. As soon as he lures you in, you make that choice to do it. As soon as he does that, he accuses you. He tells you things that are not true about God. God couldn't forgive you of that. Don't run too quick to the grace of God because, man, that, you're abusing it. Don't, get, don't really believe that God is gracious to you. Don't really believe that the gospel is that scandalous. Don't really believe that because God is actually a little bit more distant. But David realizes that Satan is the father of lies. So as a result, he runs to the father of truth, God himself. He runs to grace. Now, before I, I give you the, the next characteristic of real repentance, I want to draw your guys' attention to something that maybe as you guys were reading it, 
And maybe you've read this passage before, you guys are reading, and you're like, man, this kind of feels, there's, there's a tension here, and I, I want to show you guys what that is. Did you guys notice that even though David is positive that he will be forgiven, he still pleads with God for forgiveness? Why does he, that doesn't make sense. Why would, if he knows that God's going to forgive him, why would he seem to plead for forgiveness? He says, be gracious to me. According, like, man, he's, he's pleading with God. Why would he do that? He pleads with God for forgiveness, not because he thinks he won't get it. Not because he thinks in order to get it, he has to feel bad enough about his sin. The call of this text is not, all right, guys, pretend like you're sad, make God happy, and then he'll give you the forgiveness you want. That's not what this passage is saying. That's not what he's doing. No, David just has something in his heart that we should all pray that we all have. A deep awareness of his unworthiness of God's forgiveness. He has a deep awareness of his unworthiness of God's forgiveness. Listen to this and don't miss it. If you're a Christian in the room, listen to this. Even as a believer in Jesus, you are not entitled to God's forgiveness. Even as a believer in Jesus, you are not entitled to God's forgiveness. He will forgive you. He will show grace to you because you are his. So what do I mean? A believer in Jesus, just like David, has a growing awareness of how scandalous the grace and mercy of God is because they are such sinners. They don't deserve the mercy of God at all, but God willingly gives it to them. Man, how could he ever forgive me? And he's eager to I don't deserve this. Friends, this is the key to our worship of God. Only when you feel the weight of your sin and unworthiness can you experience the depth of God's mercy and love for you. I'll read that again. Only when you feel the weight of your sin and unworthiness, can you experience the depth of God's mercy and love for you? So feel the weight of your sin. Feel the weight of the fact, man, I am not worthy to be forgiven by such a great God. The only thing that I am entitled to is his judgment, but by his grace, because I have my faith in Jesus, I know that he will forgive me. Let's keep reading. Look at me at verse 3. David says this, For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Number two, true repentance owns their sin. True repentance owns their sin. So after recalling God's grace and forgiveness, God, uh, David doesn't ignore his sin. Instead, he says that he is conscious of his rebellion. Is that what you do when you sin? In a moment of conviction over sin, we are always faced with two options. Number one, taking ownership of your sin, or number two, justifying it. Number two, justifying it. In the moment of David's conviction over sleeping with Bathsheba, he faced that same choice. Will I take ownership of the decision that I willingly made, or will I blame it on someone else? 
Imagine, he could have been like, well, if Bathsheba wasn't showing where I could have seen her, then this would have never happened in the first place. It's her fault, actually. But what does David actually say? He says, I'm conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. He is taking ownership. He is repenting. And I don't know about you, but I can struggle with that. When faced with the decision to take ownership of my sin, what usually, or what can sometimes happen for me is, man, I, it's easier to justify it. Because I, am neglect, I neglect and I forget the fact that no one ever makes me make any kind of decision. No one, for, no one makes me sin. I forget that, so I blame it on other people. I made that choice. Uh, the other day, um, I had a long, longish day of work and uh, it just was pretty rough. And um, I come home and... Uh, in my mind, like, I'm just, like, finding myself getting annoyed at my wife. <laughs> and it doesn't, like, and I, here's the thing. Instead of taking ownership in my mind, I literally, to myself, I'm like, well, I just had a long day, so it's okay that I'm getting annoyed at these things. When in reality, it would have looked like if I would have taken ownership, I would have said, this is not okay. It doesn't matter if I had a rough day. God's word is clear. I can struggle with that. Maybe you do too. Maybe you find yourself saying things like, well, if that girl hadn't posted that picture on her IG, I wouldn't have looked up porn. Or if I hadn't had such a hard day, I wouldn't have gotten so angry at you. Or if I wasn't so anxious, I wouldn't get drunk all the time. You name it. The problem is that while it seems to help in the moment to shift the blame, what you're actually doing when you're justifying your sin is you're denying the gospel message that you say you believe. How? By justifying your sin, by explaining it away on something or, or blaming it on something or someone else, you're saying that you're not bad enough to ever need the grace of God. You know what the gospel says to you? Believer, or unbeliever, the gospel says that you are far worse than you think. You're far worse. Imagine for a moment. Okay, how horrible am I? All right, we, we're all pretty optimistic about ourselves, but you get a picture of that, and the gospel says that you're worse than that. But it says you are far more loved than you could ever imagine in Jesus. So my question is, did you hear that? The gospel already rightfully puts the blame on you, that you're worse than you could have ever thought to begin with. And in fact, the gospel says that you've sinned so badly that God sent his son to die on the cross, to be humiliated on a cross, to die there. That's how horrible our sin is. We are worse than we think. Have we forgotten that the very gospel we proclaim has already called us out for the horrible sinners we are? Have we forgotten that? So Christian, you have nothing to cover up. The gospel that you say you believe in proclaims loudly that you're a horrible sinner. That's what the gospel is saying to you. So why are you trying to shift the blame? 
If you're a Christian, you should be quick to admit your wrongdoing because the cross has already exposed you. Like literally by you saying that you're a Christian, you are telling everybody that you're a horrible sinner who has tons of sin in your life that needed someone to die on the cross for your sins, not just someone, but God himself taking on flesh to die on the cross, rise again on your behalf because you are that bad. And that's true of me too. It's true of all of us. We believe that, so why are we hiding that? Why, why do we shift the blame we already believe in a gospel that tells us that? True repentance runs to grace, owns their sin, and number three, true repentance seeks change. True repentance seeks change. Listen, David is tired of his sin. He wants to get rid of it, and maybe that's where you're at. I've got this sin struggle that just kind of hangs here, and I'm tired of it. I just want to get rid, I want to get out of my life. I can't seem to shake it. David wants nothing to do with his sin anymore, so he gets on his knees. He says, God, I promise I'll never do this thing again. Man, I, I promise that next time I see a girl, do like, just in jail, like she walks past me or anything, I'm going to look away. I'm going to do it. God, I promise I'll do better next time. Whatever. That's, I'm going to commit to doing better for you, God. I promise. That's not what he says. Many of us think that if we could just get it together, then we would stop sinning. We could just get our crap together. We're like, man, then I'd be good. I, you, have you ever made a promise to God after you've sinned? You're like, oh, that was the last time. I promise, big guy. All right. Making a promise. We think that if we could just get it together, then we would stop. But David knows something about the heart that you must know if you desire to have any kind of lasting heart change. He says this, look with me at verse 10. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You want to know the key to repentance that leads to change? Here it is. Constantly ask God for a clean heart. Constantly ask God for a clean heart. That's it. Yes, make commitments. Yes, download apps on your phone that are helpful for you. Do those things, but don't neglect to ask God to clean your heart. Jesus in Luke, you guys don't have to flip there, he says something very similarly. He says, listen, if you have an impure heart, you're going to have impure actions. If you have a pure heart, you're going to have pure actions. If you want to have a lasting life change, you don't need a five-step program. What you need is God to change your heart by the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Change comes from God creating a clean heart inside of you, a heart that loves God and fights sin. And often we think that if we just try hard to stop sinning, we'll stop. We do all these things, we make commitments. And while those things are good to do, if that's the only battle tactic that you have, you're missing true repentance and you're missing lasting life change. True repentance understands that you don't have a behavior problem. You fundamentally have a heart problem. And a heart problem needs a heart solution. And God is in the business of changing hearts. That's what he does. So when you repent, do you ask God to change your heart or do you resort immediately to changing your 
behavior. What do you do first? David continues to pray for a changed heart. Look with me, verse 12. Verse 12 says this, Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Guys, heart change requires far more than just a pure motive. Heart change also requires a heart that rejoices in the gospel, rejoices in God's salvation. It is not enough to have a pure motive. You must also have a heart that delights in following God's way, delights in it. Because when you rejoice over God's salvation of you, you realize, man, I am unworthy, sin is horrible, God is gracious to me. You're rejoicing in that salvation, and as a result, all you want is to obey God, not disobey Him. And in fact, it grieves you when you disobey Him. It delights you to obey Him. See, God prays for a God, David prays for a God-cleansed heart and a God-overjoyed heart because he knows that the only way to true change is if that happens. So if you want change, if there is sin in your life that you're like, man, I just can't shake this, ask yourself, are you asking God to, to bring you a clean heart? Are you asking God to restore the joy of his salvation? Are you rejoicing in who he is and what he's done? Because only in that way can you have true, lasting heart change. So let's keep reading. Look with me at verses 15 to 17. It says, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. So David is reflecting that what God wants from his people is not just a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they would do that. He doesn't just want a sacrifice. He doesn't just want you to sing and to raise your hands during worship. What he wants is an attitude of broken humility. He says, you do not want sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is what? A broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. The attitude that God wants is a heart of broken humility. And we see a glimpse of this in David's posture before God in verse 15. He says this, open my lips. Do you guys ever, when you sin, it just kind of feels like, man, I'm just, my mouth is shut. I, I, I can't even speak. I don't even know what to say to you, God. I know that I have strayed far from you. I don't know what to say. He prays, Lord, open my lips. There's a humility there. And he says, and my mouth will declare your praise. God, I, I am unworthy of your forgiveness. God, I, am, I know that I have wronged you, but Lord, would you open my lips that I would praise you again? So point number four is this. True repentance ends with praise. True repentance ends with praise. You know what happens for many of us, though? A lot of us are really good at being broken about our sin. We're really, really good, and we just kind of stay there. It's like, God, I'm a horrible sinner. Amen. We just kind of sit there in that. We're really good at, man, I know that I'm a broken sinner. Oh, man, I know I'm 
horrible, blah, blah, blah. But then you're miserable. You're miserable. And you see, many of us miss that the last part of repentance is always praise. The last part of repentance is always praise. You don't walk away from gospel true repentance. Just kind of like, you know, walking around like this and head down. That is not what gospel true repentance is. It doesn't leave you feeling miserable. So look with me at his repentance. Verse 8. Verse 8 says, Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Verse 8, verse 15 says, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. There's a, he's praising God in the middle of his repentance, but how? True repentance ends with praise because it recognizes that you are far worse than you could ever imagine, yet more loved than you could ever think. I'm going to say that again. True repentance ends with praise because it recognizes that you are far worse than you could ever imagine, yet you are more loved than you could ever think. True repentance ends with praise because as you feel the weight of your sin and guilt, you can truly experience the gravity of God's mighty love and forgiveness for you. Tonight, even as we worship, I invite you, man, if, if there's sin in your life, feel the weight of that, but celebrate that God sent his son to die on the cross for your sins so that you no longer have to be cast away from him and you are no longer an enemy of God. You are welcomed into the family of God. At the end of your repentance are the arms of a loving father. That's why our repentance ends with praise. I heard a pastor once say this. It is through the tears of repentance that we most clearly see the brightness and glories of the saving cross. It is through the tears of repentance that we most clearly see the brightness and glories of the saving cross. Did you guys hear that? Repentance doesn't lead you to despair. Repentance is meant to lead you to rejoice and praise God for the gospel. True repentance is incomplete without praising God for what he did for you in Jesus Christ. So how are you doing with that? How is your repentance? Does your repentance ever end in praise? Is this a new concept for you? Does your repentance leave you feeling empty and depressed? Or does your repentance leave you with an unbelievable gratitude for the gospel of Jesus? Where are you at? What is your repentance like? See, the only way to have your repentance end in praise is by embracing Jesus' acceptance of you and the gospel. Because the same thing he says to you is the same thing that he said to the woman caught in adultery. He says this, child, you are not condemned. Go and sin no more. You are not condemned. Go and sin no more. It's not, get away from me, try harder next time. It's, you are not condemned. Go and sin no more. True repentance ends with praise. So in your repentance, as you think about it, where do you struggle? 
Do you struggle to run to grace? You run to condemnation instead. You struggle to run to grace. Do you struggle to take ownership of your sin? Do you struggle to seek actual heart change? You find yourself in connection group constantly confessing the same thing over and over and over and over. And you're just, man, I'm, I'm not seeking change like I know God wants. Or do you forget to end your repentance with praise? Or maybe that's a brand new thing for you. Do you struggle to end your repentance with praise? Which one of these do you guys struggle with the most? I encourage you, whether it's during worship, whether it's right now, whether it's when you leave, I encourage you to take some time alone and to ask God, where do I miss what real repentance is? Do I believe in your grace? For me, when I was, when I was writing the sermon, I, I had to reflect myself. And for me, it is consistently, I will confess sin and then just go straight to, okay, do, 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 like do these things. And I don't reflect on the grace of God for me. I don't reflect on my unworthiness and God's great grace. That's where I can struggle. What about you? Where do you struggle? True repentance always ends with praise. Let's pray. God, thank you for confronting and challenging our assumptions about what repentance is. You're constantly showing us, constantly challenging the things that we believe about you. And God, you are far greater, far more lovely than we could ever think. We are so prone to make repentance something horrible that it's not. Repentance is meant to draw us closer and nearer and dearer to you. Repentance is to be a blessing to us. And God, we often, we often get it wrong. And so God, I pray for those in the room who, who know you, who have repentance be a, a, a thing that is a part of their life, Lord. I pray that you would make clear to them where they need to grow in their repentance. God, I pray for the unbeliever in the room who, man, they're here because their friends invited them and Man, they, they don't know the grace of God. They don't, they've never repented ever in their life and accepted Christ as their Savior. God, I pray that the gospel was made clear tonight that they would realize that where they are right now, they are far worse than they think. But in Jesus, they are far more loved than they could ever imagine if they just come and repent of their sins and turn to you, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that that would happen tonight. Would you bring a harvest of souls and, and, and make uh, enemies friends? God, we pray that you would do that. We love you and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.